Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, so let's get started. And this month's book was this one. Uh, I know that's reversed for you, but it's The Body Keeps a Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And it's really his exploration and understanding of the physiological effects of trauma on the body and the brain and how that is represented in the body. And I guess it's worth saying, therefore, that this is going to be, hi Nora, um, a difficult conversation or you know a conversation about difficult things but I think that's important because if you read the book one of the things that becomes very clear is actually that trauma isn't rare it's surprisingly common but I think unless you manage to find your way to therapy or some other kind of support group you don't know that and I think people can very often feel as though they're on their own with trauma that they're the only one that has experienced trauma that they feel very different because of their experiences and i guess if nothing else then this book and this episode of book club is to break that taboo and to uh kind of shatter that myth that it's common and and recoverable from so that's the starting point and i you know one of my things is that if I, as a psychologist, can't create a space for us to have these difficult conversations, then who can? So I see it as my job to be able to provide a space for us to be able to think about these things. All right. So I thought it might be useful because I know sometimes you guys tune in and you haven't had the opportunity to read the book. Um, so I thought it might be useful just to start with a kind of foundation level of what is trauma. Because I think one of the things that it is true is that people talk about trauma quite a lot. You know, lots of things are considered traumatic. Lots of events in the news or in the media are described as traumatic. But what do we mean clinically uh, when we talk about trauma? And when we, the kind of mental health professions, talk about trauma, trauma, what we're talking about is an event, you know, almost the definition is an event that exceeds one's capacity to cope with it um, or to integrate the emotional experience. So and that's a really important point to make, because what it means is that trauma and resilience are contextual right so that first part the, the, that it exceeds your ability to cope really comes down to 
that individual, but also the circumstances that they're in at that moment. So for example, let's say I have a very, very, very bad breakup, right? And if other things in the rest of my life are fine, you know, if work is okay, if my friendships are pretty good, if, you know, everything, if I feel physically well, then maybe that doesn't have the intensity of impact on me psychologically as it would if I'd just been made redundant and I feel lonely and isolated and I'm suffering from a physical illness, right? So those things would also impair my resilience factors and would make it more likely that this bad breakup would become a trauma. Um, And so I say that because I think, as I say, there's there's a tendency to say things, you know, an event is a is a trauma but those things are contextual and they are relative so we can't say that just because something was traumatic for me that it would be traumatic for somebody else you know we have to really be very careful and think about the individual their own coping capacity and also about the context in which they find themselves in all of those things will add up to tell us whether something is traumatic for that person or not. I'm just going to scroll back because I had a question or two. So does emotional trauma count as a thing? Yes, it absolutely does. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, Great. And now there's just a comment. Thank you, Dr. Kang. All right. So I wanted to make that point because I think that's a useful starting point. And I think there's often well-meaning, there's a tendency to think of people as at more risk than they are. And and for example, one of the things we know psychologically is that often the worst thing that you can do for someone in terms of their resilience from a trauma is to dive in and offer them therapy straight away. So let's say, for example, that there was an earthquake somewhere and you get a kind of boatload of well-meaning psychologists and therapists going, oh, well, it's an earthquake. It's a, a very traumatic event people will be traumatized, they will need therapy. Actually, what the evidence shows us is that diving in and getting people to talk about their feelings and getting them to talk about the trauma actually makes them more vulnerable to more negative outcomes down the line. And actually, we need to have a bit more faith in some people's own internal innate resilience factors and their capacity to cope. Um, And I call that making the difference between the fragility assumption and the resilience assumption. Uh, And it's one of the reasons that I don't give trigger warnings, A, because the evidence suggests that they do more harm than good, but also because I think it it creates what's called a fragility assumption, which is that you assume people are fragile. You assume that they won't be able to cope. You assume that they're gonna be traumatized. And what we know psychologically is that when you set up those assumptions, you make them more likely to happen. So yes, we need to make space, we need to monitor. So in that earthquake, example we would be looking out for the people that we think might be more vulnerable so those people who perhaps don't have as strong a social network or perhaps people who already have another set of stresses in their lives someone who has an illness or a difficulty we we, we would be maybe looking for those people who might be more vulnerable but we wouldn't be thrusting help on them immediately and assuming they won't cope because that will undermine their own innate coping capacity if that makes sense yeah and I guess coming back to the book so that's trauma the kind of basic psychological understanding and what that means is that 
very many things can be traumatizing and there's this very interesting way in which sometimes people do very well with very little by which i mean people who have had a very traumatic background maybe they've grown up with deprivation maybe they've had distant family relationships but can be quite resilient and maybe that's because they just have an innate constitution it's a way that their brain is wired that they kind of got lucky um whereas sometimes people don't do so well when they have a lot so the people that we might consider to be quite privileged you know say oh well this person has a lot of money or they've got you know their parents are still together or they've got a good job they should be able to handle things actually you need to still be thinking about the context you need to be thinking about the context of their own physical and psychological constitution as well as the other things that they've experienced in their life so we can't say a whether an event is traumatic and we can't say whether someone is or is not traumatized without knowing more about the details of the event and that, the context of that person uh, physiologically and the rest of their lives all right um one of the things that the book describes is really the ubiquity of trauma and again i think this is one of the reasons that a discussion like this is important is because as i said at the top of the session that people can end up thinking that they're by themselves but for example in the uk the estimates are that somewhere between one in three and one in four children experience abuse in childhood right so that's a huge number but you wouldn't think it you wouldn't think it because it's not spoken about and actually there's some risk that that's an underestimation of course because people don't speak about it and in particular men don't talk about it there's still a huge amount of shame around that even though of course there should be no shame because you're a child and you were helpless and you were not protected so the shame shouldn't be on the victim just make that clear but these these things are happening in numbers that we don't really recognize but then then they're not spoken about and people don't have the opportunity to perhaps to get the support that they need or even just the experience of recognition that they've been through something um that other people have been through it and therefore that they can survive i'm going to stop again for another question can you oh. Can you measure resilience of an individual given that it's a relative? Um, I would say no. So uh, again, because although you might have a sense of what you think you know about that person, you you don't know about necessarily what's happening for them internally. They might be very good at putting on a front. Um, they might have other things that are going on in their lives that they haven't disclosed to you or that you don't know. I, I don't think you can make that assumption. Maybe your guess would be closer than a stranger's. Maybe your guess would be closer than mine, for example, but it would still be a guess. Um, and really it takes a very careful, I think, and, and thoughtful discussion or uh, assessment with that person to be able to, to come to a sense of what that person is going through, how they're dealing with it, how they're coping with it, whether those ways of coping are effective and healthy and whether we can find other ways to help them that are perhaps better or more efficient, more effective. Back to the ubiquity of trauma. So the understanding that, so, and that was just kind of childhood trauma. What we also know, for example, is that people end up in accidents. There are natural disasters, there are terrorist attacks. So that we are put in, in various stages in our lives and in various areas and ways 
into the line of potentially traumatic events. And so we shouldn't be thinking of trauma as something shameful or something that should only be controlled or held onto or managed by the individual because in all of these ways, you know, there isn't a single one of those uh, events that doesn't involve society, it doesn't involve other people. So we need to be thinking about it as a responsibility to care for people who have been harmed and to try to set up our, our services and our society in a way which is more conducive to health and recovery. Um, and so back to that question, is it normal to not do two, con two, two concurrent different therapies? Yes, that's normal. Um, essentially, that's partly because the one of the crucial parts of therapy is about your relationship with your therapist and that so much of the work emerges in the context of that relationship. And so one of the things that happens um, certainly in analytic thinking is called splitting the transference. So the things that would, let's say, for example, um, you had hostile feelings about your therapist. You were angry with them for some reason. They were late starting the session or, you know, they made some sort of mistake. One of the really important things, one of the things that is actually quite healthy for your therapy would be for you to be able to go back to that therapist and say, I'm really annoyed at you. I'm really angry with you, you know, or, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I feel, you know, that would be, you know, that's the therapy, that's the work. And the risk is, for example, if you're having two concurrent therapies is that you avoid having that very honest discussion with your therapist and you take it to the other therapist, right? So you go around the corner and go, oh, I was really annoyed with that other therapist because this, this, and this. And then you end up almost with a little collusion. So that other therapist goes, yeah, mm, they shouldn't have done that. Oh, that's really bad. Oh. And then actually what you've got is two concurrent different types of relationships going on. And that's not necessarily considered helpful because what we tend to want, because often what's going on with people when they are suffering, when they are struggling, is that they are existing in different parts of themselves. So maybe they're one version of themselves at work. They're another version of themselves with their family. They're another version of themselves with their partner, another with their friends. And you don't want to keep replicating that experience in your therapy. What you want is what we call integration, which is where you bring all of your parts, all of the parts of you together into one place so that you can get to know yourself. Your therapist can help you to get to know yourself and you can become more comfortable with that experience of, well, this is a part of me that I don't like so much, but I can tolerate it. I can bear it. I can understand it in the context of these other parts of me that I do like and I do admire and that you can start to get a sense of yourself as a whole. So that's one of the reasons why we don't like to do two concurrent therapies. Um, what it is possible to sometimes do is to agree a break. So if, for example, let's say you're in a long-term therapy and then you get a specific opportunity to maybe do a drug and alcohol course, which is for a fixed or limited amount of time. So maybe you're, it's eight weeks, 12 weeks, um, or something like that, then what your therapist might do, and not all therapists would, but they might say, okay, this opportunity isn't gonna come around again, and it's important for you to deal with this issue, so we can pause the therapy, you can seek that other treatment, and then return. Um, but it would be very rare, and I'm not sure I can think of an example where it would be helpful to have two concurrent therapies running at the same time. All right. Um, so 
that question was also about EMDR. EMDR is one of the responses to one of the treatment op- options for trauma, which has been found to be incredibly effective. People still aren't really sure how it works. Um, but it kind of leads me to think about the difference between, or it's worth discussing, the difference between chronic and acute trauma. Um, and so the, really we're thinking about how long the events last. And so with an acute trauma, it's maybe a one-off event or a short-term experience. So it might be, for example, that earthquake, or it might be someone, I don't know, getting into a, getting a, into a fight in the street and, um, and getting hurt that way. That would be an acute trauma. And a chronic trauma or a long-term trauma or a complex trauma is one that goes on for an extended period of time. Um, if you listened to the borderline personality disorder episodes of the podcast that I did last year, um, you'll know that there's a real move, certainly among uh, service users and clients, to have a borderline personality disorder redefined as complex trauma, as a, re- as a response to complex trauma. And what is absolutely clear, for example, is that certainly when I worked in prisons, that there were a high number of women with borderline personality disorder in prison and they had had some of the most traumatic, well, they had, you know, there was no comparison, the most traumatic experiences growing up that I had ever experienced and heard of. And so there's a real question about how we use these labels in response to people who have suffered. And I think that is a conversation that needs to continue. We need to be very thoughtful about the way that perhaps we compound trauma by labeling the person who was a victim in the first place in the way that they've coped with what they went through perhaps as children or adolescents or at some very kind of vulnerable time in their lives. Okay. Again, one of the issues around trauma and the taboo of trauma is that sense of isolation, that sense that I'm the only person who has been through what I've been through and that I am the only one who could possibly understand what I've been through or people who've been through the exact same thing or something very similar. But then also, and particularly where there has been trauma to the body, the idea or the experience, the belief that now I am tainted in some way. Somehow I'm very, very different. Um, Almost that you can imagine that people can see it from a distance, that you'll be marked as different somehow in the world. And again, I guess that's the point of having conversations like this, which is to really help people to understand that these experiences are much, much more common than you think. Um, They're much more common than is generally discussed in kind of polite society, we might say. And if you feel like, you know, you going to a therapist and you tell your story and you think to yourself, they never will have heard this before, in likelihood, you know, we probably have. And that means that we're probably in a quite a good position to be able to support you. So that's just kind of reiterating that point. Okay, my experiences of trauma is that I had to deal with that EMDR before I could focus on the physical health. Um, Yeah, and I think there's 
there is, as it says in the book, there's a kind of top-down and bottom-up way of addressing trauma and, and particularly body trauma. I haven't really got into that part about how trauma gets stuck in the body. I tend to think, I guess, as you guys would know, that we need a comprehensive and holistic approach. And so I quite often refer people to therapy and or kind of general non-therapeutic support group so I wouldn't send someone to a group therapist if they were still seeing me but you know I would say maybe you should also be going to AA maybe you should also be doing yoga maybe you should also be thinking about these other ways of looking after yourself in a total sense while we address in the therapy the more psychological side of things and and that's really about understanding that these experiences don't just have an effect on our minds they have an effect on our entire bodies and that anxiety and stress and trauma have physiological effects on the body and I think you guys will have seen the post I did a while ago showing a that trauma can change the shape and function of the brain but also so that therapy can change the structure of the brain so that we know that these emotional experiences have physiological effects and that's it's really important for us to remember that, that remember the body in the context of what we consider to be just psychological or just emotional experiences someone else says i've been struggling since the sudden death of my mum i'm very sorry um we notice lots of tingliness in different parts of our body even when i feel otherwise fine and relaxed so I mean, I'm not going to jump to a diagnosis, of course. Um, I'm going to assume that you've been to see your doctor. If not, please do. Um, but certainly one of the things that we think about, and, and maybe a few, a couple of months ago, you guys would have seen me go to a conference on what's called medically unexplained uh, symptoms or um, somatizing experiences, where if we can't find a way of processing the emotions or the psychological aspects of our experiences, they can be transformed into some sort of physiological experience. Quite often and very, very often, that's the more common ailments such as back pain, neck pain, headaches. Um, yeah, I think those are the main ones. And at the extreme end, it can be things like seizures or loss of function in a limb if we can't find a way of processing this emotional experience. Okay, so I think I kind of half answered this person's question. So I think, yes, there's there's definitely a way. And, and when I say that, I want to make it explicitly clear that that's not saying that it's kind of made up or it's in your head. It, we need to really think about the way that the body transforms the psychological into the physiological. Or as I say, you know, the emotions are physical they are you have you know physical chemicals that have a physical effect on the brain they can trigger other hormones within the body which then have physical effects on other parts of the body so we need to start really thinking about how things like anxiety stress trauma worry all ex express themselves through our bodies and you guys will hear me talk about that an awful lot and in fact let's Let's dive into how and why that might happen. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One of the main thinkers on this was a woman called Esther Bick. She was a, a psychoanalyst and she described what she called the skin container, which sounds gross, <laughs> but it, it's a way of describing how the mind is organized before it starts to develop, right? So, and, and we're thinking about um, our development from babies into children and then into adulthood, right? So the way that you begin to understand the world, the way that you begin to understand your own mind is in two ways, one through your own development, but also what's reflected to you back from your main carer so for shorthand i'm going to say mother because it is still mostly mother that does most of the caring but of course include fathers and other um, carers and parents in that as well so let's imagine take your mind back to being a baby right so you're a little baby you've just been born you're not really sure where you end and the rest of the world begins right because babies don't know that they haven't they don't have that sense of self they don't have that sense of separation from the world yet everything's just a bit of a big kind of mush uh, in their minds and what happens when a baby feels a sensation and we think babies do have quite strong emotions is that they feel it in their entire bodies right so if you imagine a baby feels hungry let's just start with a very simple physiological experience they don't have the word for hunger they don't know oh i'm hungry it's time for a snack you know all they experience is that physiological discomfort right and they're only small so they'll feel it pretty much in their entire bodies whether it's that kind of tension in their muscles you know that when you feel hungry you maybe feel a bit antsy you feel a bit distracted your mood might drop maybe you get a bit hangry you know all of this stuff we know that hunger has this physiological response on us but when you're a teeny weeny baby you don't you can't make sense of that all you know is this and we don't even have these words but this is really uncomfortable this is kind of scary i don't know when it's going to end i might feel like this forever this might this you know does this mean that i'm dying right so we understand that these emotional experiences are enormously distressing 
for us when we're babies and before we have the words to be able to understand them. And what the parent does is to make that understandable. First of all, the parent comes in and says, oh, I think you're hungry. So over and over again, they get that, the baby gets that message of, oh, this experience has a name, right? This trauma, this discomfort that I'm experiencing can be understood and it has a name. And if it has a name, if I can put it into a word, then I can think about it. It, be, it stops being something amorphous and broad and just in the world and unexplainable and becomes something that is contained. And in this sense, it's contained within a word. In a broader sense, it's contained within the mother's mind. So the mother has been able to interpret the discomfort and say, oh, hey, I know what's going on for you. Don't worry, we can fix this. It will be over soon and you'll go back to being happy. So we think of that as one of the ways that we contain some of our anxieties, but the body is the other way. And in fact, the body is the first way. And we think about the body as being the thing that holds you together before your mind is developed enough to hold you together, right? And so this is one of the reasons, for example, that people who aren't particularly good at or have not had the opportunity to learn how to process their emotions might rely on their body to manage their anxieties. And whether that's going to the gym, working out a lot, whether that's doing a lot of exercise, you know, doing a lot of running, um, or whether that's through the finite management of their body through food issues, you can see the way that people, if you haven't got the language, if you haven't got the way of understanding the psychology or the emotions that you're experiencing, you return to your skin as the way, your skin, i.e. your body, as a way of managing these anxieties. And so one of the, the tools that we really think about is helping people get the vocabulary, get the language to be able to think about their experience so that whatever they're going through can be contained within a word, within you know the, the appropriate name for the emotion, and then it can be thought about because before then, you can't really think about it without, and it's an interesting kind of uh, realization to come to, but without words, you can't really think, yeah? So that we need those words in order to contain what's, what we're experiencing. We're talking for ages, so I'm gonna stroll back through to some questions. Does one always have to see a therapist to help with processing emotions and feelings? Um, yes and no, right? I think that other supportive relationships are hugely, hugely important for healing and for recovery in all sorts of ways. One of the best ways, for example, to develop a sense, you know, a really felt deep sense of unconditional love is if you get into a relationship with someone who loves you unconditionally. So if you find a partner who just loves you and takes care of you and is thoughtful and considerate and kind. I think that is hugely healing and I, I think that's really important. But that person might not be equipped or just appropriate for you to deal with other aspects of perhaps what might have been a, tra a traumatic experience for you. And it might not be fair to expect them to, right? It might not be fair to expect your partner to be your therapist or your friends to be your therapist. And also they, 
by definition can't be objective they can't kind of say well actually i think this is a way in which you might be doing something without perhaps it getting in the way of that your relationship with them without you thinking that they're blaming you or you know something like that so there's something very specific about the therapeutic relationship which is designed essentially to create a space for it to just be about you where you don't have to worry about the other person's feelings so you don't have to worry about whether you're burdening them you don't have to think about taking care of them all of the focus all of the attention all of the resources are designed around you and I think people are welcome to disagree with me and let me know any alternatives but I think that's that would be my position on it and the other thing I would say is because I guess the alternative is can you work through it yourself I don't think so I think first of all um, if you were trying to do it yourself perhaps through through self-help books or or online courses or something that you're too subjective you're too in it and I think it would perhaps be difficult for you to get an objective view of your experience um but also more fundamentally we're not made to deal with pain by ourselves um and I believe that very strongly Uh, I think that we are social animals we are born into networks that for example one of the biggest risk factors for our psychological decline is loneliness. We're made to be with people. And part of that is that we have others to help us to shoulder our burdens and to feel supported and to feel connected and to feel thought about and looked after. Um, and I think that is an essentially human, not you know, not sociability, but that ability to share emotional burdens is, is essentially human and I think we shouldn't try to shy away from that. In fact, I think there are too many of us that are trying to avoid that and we should be moving much more towards connection and support and, you know, affection and looking after each other. So that would be my answer to that. Um, okay, we've got another recommendation for the next book club. Um, the Cost of Hidden Stress. Yes, I will put that on the list. I've got one for next uh, next month so but thank you very much and we I will always take your recommendations in fact this book was one of your recommendations so thank you very much for that where were we we were talking about the skin as a container the body as a container so yes so there are lots of ways that people turn back to their bodies in order to maintain that sense of integrity of being held together and one of the things that is very very consistent with trauma is the body so it's a kind of spectrum sorry very loud color outside um what you can end up with is either a disassociation from the body or a a kind of obsession with the body all right back to your questions the physical symptoms of anxiety for me are worse than the mental heart palpitations sweating feelings of dread yeah um and and i think that's one of the reasons that it's really important to be able to have a spectrum of tools so that's what i mean when i say that i won't expect myself to be able to to provide all of the answers for for my clients for example and why i will say i think maybe it would be good for you to do yoga alongside as you know as an adjunct treatment because we also need to be always keeping the body in mind Um, And yoga is particularly good. I have a whole section in my book called um, 
why yoga works. And there are lots of mechanisms within yoga which make it particularly good for helping to re kind of take the body back into homeostasis, to take the body back into a parasympathetic mode. Um, and that's the breathing, the stretching, the meditative aspects of it. So there's so many aspects of of yoga that are actually really important. And I think it's worth saying that because I, particularly with wellness, <laughs> yoga has been very much kind of commodified and turned into a very middle class occupation. Um, but actually it's a powerful intervention and it's very personalizable, not just in the sense that you can do your own practice at home, but that there are different types of yogas to suit different types of people. So that if you're the kind of person who doesn't, who struggles with sitting still, well, maybe you should do a kind of yoga where you sit still so you can work through what that resistance is, what that difficulty is. But also there are more dynamic forms of yoga as well, which perhaps um, would be an easier way in for you. So I'm a, a big proponent of finding other ways to connect with the body as part of your therapy, as part of your psychological treatment, because so much of your trauma or so much of your experience will be lodged in the body. And so we have to keep the body in the room. Um, all right. Yes. Thank you. The brain doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, medically unexplained symptoms, also known as functional disorders. Um, really, really fascinating area of research. I will see whether I can get someone in to talk to us about that. Because again, I really think it's important that we, you know, I talk a lot about this separation between the brain and the body and psychology, psychology and psychiatry are as guilty of it as anyone. That when for years and years and years, basically for the last hundred years, when anybody has walked into a psychologist or psychotherapist's office and said, I feel very depressed or I feel very anxious, we've said, okay, so you know, tell me how you're feeling here and have ignored the rest of the body. Um, it doesn't make sense on a kind of physiological level. You know, everything that's connected in here is connected to all parts of your body. Um, if you remember the video I did on the vagus nerve, that is one nerve that goes from here all the way down into your gut. So any activation there is likely to be experienced or related to things that are happening in the rest of your torso at least, right? And so everything is connected. Your brain doesn't understand that the rest of the world sees the body as separate, right? Your brain is like, I am all one. <laughs> and so we need to start thinking much more about seeing those things, the brain and the body as connected and therefore treating them in an integrated way, which I think means more networking. So psychologists and psychotherapists, counsellors, building networks with uh, psychologically minded yoga practitioners, non-diet uh, dietitians who might be able to support people around how they eat and their relationships with food so they can do it kind of side by side. Um, maybe helping people to find a local walking group. You know, these sorts of things. We need to be thinking much more about the body if we really want to have our clients have the best recovery possible. Um. So someone's saying, how about speaking to a friend or therapist, for example, versus writing things down for processing? Okay, so y'all will know that I'm a big fan of writing things down and explicitly by hand because there is an, a deeper level of processing that happens when you're writing something down by hand than when you're typing it. Um, I, I basically recommend everybody 
I meet, but certainly all of my clients um, to have a journal alongside therapy. And that's partly to create a space outside, you know, because I will see people once, maybe twice a week. Um, you've got a lot of other hours in the week when you're experiencing things. So that it's important to have a space to take those thoughts and those ideas. But it's also about developing a deeper and more active awareness of your emotional experience, right? So if I'm asking you to regularly check in with your emotional world, then bit by bit over time, you'll start doing that much more automatically. And what that means is that you're much less likely to be suppressing, denying, avoiding your feelings because you're checking in on a regular basis. And what that means is that you're much less likely to end up at a crisis point way down the line because it's almost like you've been, you know, like when you shake up a, a, a like a bowl of coke, you know, rather than whoosh, and it all spilling out all at once. If you're doing a regular check-in, you're just taking the pressure off a little bit at a time. Um, so I'm a big fan of writing things down as processing. I still think it's an adjunct to therapy, probably. Um, again, I'm, I'm ready to hear um, other um, arguments against um, because the objectivity because the training you know trained for over a decade to do this so I, I hope I can bring something <laughs> to it that perhaps um somebody going through it by themselves won't um as well as kind of just experience and and space and connection and an empathetic ear and you know, someone who is interested. So that sense of not being alone with it. So yes, writing, definitely, but stop trying to avoid therapy. <laughs> All right. Uh, someone said, if you've got time, I'd like to know more about whether we should be putting trigger warnings on posts. I don't think I was traumatized, but I think, but I would have wanted to avoid certain topics after. Um, I've done a blog post on this on my website. Um, I also posted a, another story because another paper came out showing that trigger warnings tended to make people with PTSD worse than if they didn't receive them. I think, of course, it's going to be individual, but if we're looking at it as a whole, the overall literature as it stands at the moment does not make a case in support of trigger warnings in terms of helping people who have been traumatized um so i can i can put those links back up but you can certainly find that on my on my page if you want to put trigger warnings up that's up to you but i think you need to know that there isn't a literature that supports that decision um so uh, another question, I experienced a traumatic experience about a year and a half ago. I know I struggle with forgetfulness. Could there be a link? Um, potentially. And, you know, I haven't assessed you. I have, excuse me, I haven't met you. But one of the things that we do know about stress hormones. So assuming that this traumatic experience has led to an elevated experience of stress for you then what we do know about elevated stress hormones is that they do damage an area of the brain called the hippocampus and the hippocampus is the area of the brain that is crucial for memory so for example the hippocampus is the part of the brain that is first and most severely damaged in alzheimer's disease um, and it's a part of the brain 
which is actually really rich in receptors for cortisol. And that's because it's actually quite important to remember traumatic memories, annoying as that is, because essentially from an evolution, evolutionary perspective, what it means is you will very quickly remember the thing that caused you trauma so that if a similar event happens again, or if you find yourself in a similar, similar situation again, hopefully, ideally, the goal would be that you would respond much more quickly and you will be able to remember the strategies you used to get out of it the last time. So at its core, um, having so many stress hormone receptors in the hippocampus is a means of protection. It's there to help you to remember your effective survival strategies from the last time so that you can use them again. But what it means is if you have a prolonged experience of stress, right, because in our evolutionary history, stress was infrequent. It would, you know, you'd have a stressful moment and then you go back to baseline. Then maybe a bit later, there'd be a stress and then you go back to baseline. In our modern lives, what happens is that there are lots of reasons to be stressed. So whether that's you're scrolling through Instagram and constantly reading something very stressful or finding things that upset you or whether you're in a a difficult relationship or whether you have you're doing work that you hate or whether you're caring for someone who is very ill all of these things that are chronic stresses mean that there's constant upregulation of these stress hormones and when it's over a long period of time what it can do is to overwhelm those receptors in the hippocampus and that's why depression and stress are both associated with forgetfulness and memory impairment so possibly you know i don't know your specific case but there is an established link in in the research literature yes and and perhaps someone's mentioned hunger by roxane gay and um possibly that will be another book for the list i know we haven't i don't think we've done a food related thing which is odd considering, <laughs> considering i'm food and psych um so yeah maybe we'll we'll get on to that how does one define trauma? When we finish this, I go back to the beginning because I define trauma at the top of the session based on the um, the DSM definition. Another question, is it possible to reverse the damage to the hippocampus caused by prolonged periods of stress? I'm just gonna give you a little plug for the book. Uh, yes, frankly, um, maybe it depends. We need to know what the degree of damage is, um, how long you've been being stressed for, you know, all of that sort of stuff, although there's individual differences. But what we do know is that the hippocampus is one of the few areas of the brain um, where you get what's called adult neurogenesis. So that's the creation of new brain cells in adulthood. So it had been thought up until very, very recently that basically all of your brain cells, you get in uh, childhood and infancy and then it was just like a downhill <laughs> slide from there but what we know now and what has been established is that there are two or three areas of the brain that continue to express adult neurogenesis and the hippocampus is one of the main ones and basically all of the book is about telling you the lifestyle factors so i.e the things that are within your hands because there are things that aren't in our hands and we have to acknowledge those but the things that are within your power to help upregulate up the processes that can help promote that. Um, so yes, yes, there is. I got a glimpse of your Alzheimer's videos last week. 
but I got called away and then missed them while they still up. Um, so there's a neuroscience IGTV series, if that's what you're talking about. Yes, they're still up. You just need to go to my main page and click on the little telly with the little wiggly line in it, and that should take you to the neuroscience um, series. They should still be there. Um, is there a connection between childhood emotional trauma and adult binge eating? Yes, absolutely. It's one of the clearest associations we have between uh, binge eating, overweight and obesity is trauma um, that up to 50% of people who present with obesity have had some have had childhood sexual abuse um it's one of the reasons why i get really angry when people are just blase um just abusive about people's bodies because you know no not everybody with obesity has been abused but these are responses to trauma these are the ways that we use the body to protect ourselves to save ourselves to keep ourselves together, to stay integrated, to survive, and then to be abused by, I'm getting angry, but yes, <laughs> there is a link. Um, it's one of the strongest links in the literature. And that's why it's really important if you do have food issues, that you're not just given a meal plan, that you don't, you know, if you're, if the issue is related to your emotional relationship with food, right? If you're, if there's something about the way you use food which is linked to feeling that will not be fixed with a meal plan you can't just go to a nutrition professional and get a meal plan and think that's going to fix it um it's why nutrition professionals shouldn't be working in isolation with people with these sorts of conditions they are psychological in nature and at the very least there should be joint working on these things i'm running out of time and i know that instagram kicks us off on that um i think just under an hour so i will wrap this up i think i've pretty much said all the things that i wanted to say um oh so that so the second part of that question was uh, what if obesity is not the problem but rather eating restricting patterns yes same <laughs> um that it's still about people turning back to their bodies um, we see it more explicitly in overweight and obesity, uh, almost because it's the thing that people tend to be looking out for. But yes, you know, that eating disorders are psychological disorders and they tend to be ways, you know, whether they're disorders of compulsive eating or excessive restriction, they tend to be ways that people turn back towards their bodies to manage or make sense of or distract themselves from emotional discomfort that they can't tolerate understand or don't feel that they've got someone to help them work it through all right guys i am going to wrap that up there um thank you very much again for your kind attention i will leave this video up for 24 hours i have been recording this one so it will go on the long list of podcasts that i uh, will get out to you but they will go out and i will be back tomorrow with next month's book. All right. Thanks, guys. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 